For November 30th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 648. If you think you are more important than the hat... Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny that it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny friends from the internet, a royal dynasty of smart, funny friends uh, stretching back to the Norman Conquest. And uh, we're very glad to be here to talk uh, about the things that we love. We love them more when we love them together. Yeah, it sounded a little weird when it came out of my mouth. Six, seven... I'm Matt Rather. I'm joined uh, by Pete Fenzel, Your Majesty. Your Highness. And Mr. Mark Lee, Your Majesty. Your Grace. <laughs> and we are oh, going to... Oh, no, no, oh, that's not in the protocol. I messed it up. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, I'm ruined. Messed it, You're messed off it the up. island. Yeah, messed it up worse than <laughs> Jacqueline Kennedy in the, you know, well... But uh, no one can cold shoulder like Claire Foy. All right. So uh, if you haven't picked it up yet, we are talking uh, about The Crown, which just finished its fourth season, uh, the season with Olivia Coleman playing Queen Elizabeth. And they, um, you know, and and Gillian Anderson, uh, Scully herself, playing the Iron Lady Margaret Thatcher. So uh, spoiler alert for all of that. Um, spoilers uh, for the marriage of Prince Charles and Diana. Uh, Diana Spencer. So if you don't know how that one turned out, pause the, pause the <laughs> podcast now. They, they lived happily ever after. So, no, and uh, yeah, and we're uh, we've we've uh, we've watched it all and we're going to we're going to talk it through. But first, uh, you may have noticed uh, a certain um, you may have noticed that uh, that 2020 has had certain unique things about it as a year. I don't know. Uh, guys, have you noticed this or is it just me? No, no. I mean, there's definitely been a couple of things. Uh, chess has been really popular. We talked about that. Yeah, that's true. And um, gosh, what else has been I, going on? I started on? watching a lot of sports, you know, and you really helped get me into the NBA. So that was a, a, yeah. a red letter. That, that was Sonic a red the letter Hedgehog thing. movie came out. Uh, yes. Oh, right. Yeah. Gosh, that's uh, that's it's been so. Yeah, it's been uh, so long. It's been it, a feels long like, year. <laughs> it feels like so long ago. No, uh, the character of 2020 has been different um, from other years. And normally at this time of year, actually, last Friday, as we record this, um, this is the episode for November 30th, uh, you know, 2020. So last Friday was Black Friday the uh, holiday of consumerism. And normally we um, post uh, a gift guide, an overthinking it gift guide. Now, you know what this is. It's a thing where we put a, a bunch of links to, I mean, you know what this is because everybody does it. We put a bunch of links to Amazon and when you click, we get a commission. That's what the gift guide is. It's nothing. Gwyneth Paltrow does not actually care about recommending the perfect scented candle to you. I'm sorry to disappoint you if you were really banking on that as a uh you know as a way of, of getting through the season no it's all driven by uh shameless commercialism and we we were really early on the bandwagon before it became you know a common practice before it became like the thing that was going to save publishing before you know um i don't know the 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 new york times paid 40 million dollars to buy the wire cutter which is a whole website run on this principle, on the principle of affiliate marketing. And, uh, you know, I, I like to think that ours over the last 
God, 12 years have distinguished themselves through, you know, snappy, funny writing and maybe some idiosyncratic recommendations. But it didn't seem right um, to kind of indulge in this exercise, uh, especially given that they are... um, you know, especially, especially given that, uh, our members so generously support us, uh, month after month after month. And if you would like to become one, you should. But, uh, you know, it, it seemed wrong to kind of do a big fundraiser to, to funnel money to ourselves. Um, because we're doing okay. We are very fortunate in that, uh, all of, all of us are, uh, are well situated and, and the website is well situated. Um, so we decided to do uh we decided to do something else uh for this and and uh to 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 for the season for black the black friday season and we wanted to give uh give something back um maybe to uh maybe to a, a charity or something where we could do some good in in the world and we wanted to rally the global community of overthinkers um, to do this. So, uh, I don't know, dealer or, uh, you know, listener's choice, I, I guess, Pete or Mark, do you want to, do you want to hear the plan first or do you want to hear who we're supporting first? Where, where, where should we go f- with this? Who are, we who, are, yeah, who are we supporting? Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, well, so we, we had some talks about it, uh, internally and actually the, the, and, you know, should we support one organization or many? And we decided, no, we're going to sort of pool it and kind of make one big contribution in one place. And what is an appropriate, um, out of so many worthy causes, uh, and I hope, you know, you support, uh, the worthy causes that are, are nearest and dearest to your heart. But what is the one that is, uh, closest to overthinking its heart collectively? And actually, Mark Lee came up with, uh, the answer, which is that we are going to, in, in lieu of doing a gift guide, we are going to raise money, uh, together, um, as, you know, ourselves and the podcast audience for, uh, the actors fund. The Actors Fund is a charity that makes direct grants to people in entertainment uh, for um, a, a variety of reasons, for sort of rent support, for, you know, any kind of sort of dire circumstance. Um, you know, they if you're in the entertainment community, it's something you get solicited a lot uh, for this kind of thing. But I'm not sure it's it's necessarily... A, um, I'm not sure it's a charity that's known to people outside of this, but being in the unions, I'm, you know, on mailing lists and they send, they send stuff out and it's something I've supported personally. But Mark, I don't know if, if, if you can say, but like why, uh, what came to mind about the Actors Fund for you and, uh, you know, what has your connection been with it? Well, uh, I learned about it through, you know, the particular beginning of the pandemic where, uh, they got, you know, lots of Broadway performers to put these amazing, um, you know, song and dance uh, virtual performances together to raise money for this very cause. Um, I think it was the one that did Hairspray. And yes, Harvey was there and it was everything. Um, and, and and I loved it. And of course, it, I chipped and do- donated uh, uh, most directly because of that. But more generally, I mean, longtime listeners of the show will know that I live in New York. Um, I frequent Broadway shows. Um, I have a lot of fam- family and friends in the uh, entertainment business here in New York. And, um, at this time of the year, um, I, you know, I was just reminded that the losses in that community are nothing short of devastating and staggering. We are talking about tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, um, in the greater New York area to say nothing of, you know, the United States, um, who have really lost their livelihoods, either some or all of it. And, you know, we're not talking about trust fund, 
uh, babies or anything like that. We're talking about real working people with families and mouths to feeds and, and, you know, just really their own professional, personal dignity to uphold. Um, and so, you know, since these uh, actors, creators, performers have given so much of themselves to us over the years, um, for us supposed to kind of, you know, enjoy its surface value, but also to, you know, overthink and, you know, for your uh, entertainment and, uh, and, and interest, um, we thought that this would be a worthy cause to give to. So, um, that's the actors fun. Uh, that's at least how I came to them and like my reasons for, um, bringing this to the group. Does that sound good, Matt? Yeah, it, it definitely, I mean, it, it sounds good to me. I, I, you know, have known about the, the, uh, this particular organization for a little while. They have a, a whole bunch of services, including like career workshops and and um, sort of health and human services type services. Uh, they have they operate affordable housing that people in the entertainment industry can avail themselves of, and uh, like a care home uh, as well. Um, and all, you know, and then all kinds of, uh, like education and, and sort of support services in addition to making direct, uh, financial grants to people who are in, in real dire circumstances. Um, you know, acting is, I mean, it's, you need a union for it. So the, the, uh, the working conditions can be, can be challenging even, even at the best of times. And, you know, we, we talk about actors who work, um, but, uh, the actors can't work by and large right now. And that really, you know, though, though a lot of sort of higher tier people who are maybe financially secure, um, are, you know, doing, doing things on TV, there's a huge like middle class sort of working, working class, uh, tier of, of actors who like might be people that you love as, you know, quirky guest characters on, on shows or movies that, that, uh, you like, well, that person made like, $2,000 for that appearance, <laughs> probably less after uh, taxes and all of the, all of the people were paid. And, you know, they work maybe four or five, what, six times a year if they're, if they're lucky. Right. And now all of that has gone away. Um, so anyway, it, it is, uh, when the actors who work can't work, uh, let's overthinking it, um, support them. Sorry, not to, not to belabor the point, but you can tell I'm passionate about it. So here is what we are going to do. Uh, we are are uh, inviting all members of the Overthinking It audience, all the listenership, all the readership through the years. We're going to reach out on every channel that we have uh, to make a contribution to... Um, uh, to the Actors Fund through us. There will be a link in the show notes for this to a place where you can go, designate an amount of money, put in a credit card. Um, we're going to collect all that money and uh, send it out together. Um, I mean, send it out as sort of one donation, which means that you have one week <laughs> to get your donations in. So if you're listening to this podcast as it posts, you have until the next podcast to uh to get it in i i probably should have looked it up but it's uh you know it's a week it's a week from wherever you are now don't wait a week get on there now go click we're going to collect um we're going to collect all the money uh, that, that our community generously contributes to this. We're going to cover the credit card processing fees and stuff like that ourselves. So none of it will be lost, uh, to that. We'll just, you know, um, eat the cost of that and, and send it. And then, uh, the other thing that, uh, overthinking it is going to do is we're going to double your contributions to the actors fund so that if you give $1, it will, uh, count as two. If you give $50, it'll count as a hundred. If you give $1 million, 
Uh, You've it, ruined all of us. Yeah, I know. That's uh, it's not. Um, it's not. Uh, please, <laughs> yeah, don't let, please you know don't what? give a million dollars. <laughs> it's a great. It's a great problem to have. Can't wait. Uh, we, we would ha- we would have to sell all of our land holdings <laughs> in the countryside to cover that. In the duchy give of yourself, the Write duchy the of yeah, in the don't duchy go of Cornwall. If you give a million dollars, I would love that. Uh, I would love that problem. <laughs> I would love to have to <laughs> figure true. out. We'll figure it out. We'll how, figure it out. How we'll to, talk to your. We'll talk to your family wealth advisor and sort something out that'll be how how to deal with that but yeah absolutely so we are uh we're going to cover the credit card fees we're going to double it and we are going to watch bad christmas movies holiday Uh, movies matt i am open to bollywood diwali (laughs) movies hanukkah movies kwanzaa movies pagan movies about the solstice uh yes there are many many christmas movies but we are casting a wide net here we will dance for you like the monkeys we are. <laughs> as as a if you uh, remember the Nicholas Sparks challenge all those many years ago, it will work something like this: for every twenty five dollars that uh, a member that we raise collectively to you know together uh, that we you know do. Uh, so that is to say, if you give five and another listener gives five and another listener gives fifteen, there's your uh, there's your one twenty five dollars for every twenty five dollars that we raise collectively. We among uh, about six of us will watch one bad holiday movie. Now, the template for this is the Hallmark uh, Christmas films. We'll, we'll just probably start with that catalog. And when it's exhausted, we will, we will, uh, we will um, expand our horizons to A Christmas Prince. Uh, a Christmas Prince 2, Two Prince to Christmas, and uh, A Christmas Prince 3, uh, Christmas Prince with a Vengeance, right? Um, we will expand our, our horizons to, I don't know, where, where, are, the other, where are the other good uh, The whole good Christmas movies? Buddies distant Airbud spinoff spinoff franchise about dogs helping Santa. Yes. I, I'm, I, will, I will go there for all of you. Right, and for the actors who work, and, including uh, all the dogs, and, dogs? and uh, George Went, who is in this movie. <laughs> also, it, Santa Claus versus the Martians on the pile, right? Yep. That terribly B movie. It's not not a Christmas movie. So, uh, on the next podcast, we will announce, uh, I think, uh, the the number of films, and and to the extent that we can, we will announce the roster of films. Well, we're that, not just going to watch them. Man. No, uh, oh, sorry, I'm, uh, Pete, uh, take it over. I'm I'm obviously making a, a dog's breakfast of this. So, no, so no, you no. take I mean, it. Over. We're, we're going to cover them in some way, right? Like we're going to write something or we'll podcast something like you'll get content. You will all see the content related to the Christmas movies that we watch. I don't or I don't remember holiday movies, as it were. I don't remember exactly what we agreed upon in terms of does it have to be an article? Does it have to have a word count? Does it have to could it be a podcast or a video? Uh, but I think we were saying something uh, roughly equivalent to a 500 word article, right? Yeah, it, maybe well, a little shorter, well, or maybe something that's a little that's bit a lot of words. I thought we'd I thought we'd settled about 250 to 300, yeah, which two, is nobody wants to read 500 words about Christmas buddies too. 350 <laughs> would be the trick. Um, but yeah, you know what I mean. Like it, it, it depends. I mean, it depends on scale and time. But something that is that is worth it and entertaining, and you will be able to appreciate and enjoy that that we went through this, and that that will provide something for your entertainment. Yep. Um, and again, you're not just you don't just buy this yourself. You you chip in whatever you can, and then everybody else chips in too, and it just creates a pool, right? It's like the presents under the tree, except they're all about 
you know, single career women who are going back to the old town <laughs> and have a mystical experience at a mall looking at a sleigh ride or something. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's some guy from Supernatural or Grey's Anatomy or something who like appreciates the meaning of Christmas and is a ghost. I don't know. We haven't watched all of them yet. I don't know how they all work. We'll, well find out. So thank we you will. for bearing with this this long description. We haven't done anything like this before, so it it you know it, it might have come out in in a slightly unclear way. But we are going to, uh, in lieu of a gift guide this year, which uh, benefits Overthinking It, we are going to uh, do a fundraiser to benefit the Actors Fund. Uh, for every twenty five dollars that we raise collectively, we will match. <laughs> Overthinking It will match, and we will. Um, also watch one bad Christmas movie and uh, produce content on overthinking it about that Christmas movie between now it, during the the month of December while 2020 uh, is still with us. Please, uh, you have one week, but do it right now. It's right there in the show notes in your podcast app. Click the link to go through. Uh, give what you can. Please give generously. Uh, if if you are lucky enough to be able to give, um, you know we are we are supporting the people who who bring us joy and who uh, you know work many of them behind the scenes to uh, give the things that we love to overthink together. So. We we as smart, funny friends can uh, chip in and help them out around the holidays. Thanks very much. Uh, hit the link in the show notes. All right. Let's go on to the crown. Mark, was there anything interesting about uh, the discovery of Diana Spencer when we saw her for the first time that you think might be thematically interesting to talk about? Mm, let's mm, see yeah. here. Um she was hiding behind a plant. Oh, that's a good. Uh, one. Oh, yes, which is a clear reference to uh, Prince Charles's interest in environmentalism. I believe that's it. Yes, <laughs> and vegetarianism. <laughs> and vegetarianism. <laughs> that's uh, yeah. It's uh, absolutely. She um, she uh, is wearing a sort of an ivory colored uh, or sort of tan colored garment, which is uh, a reference to the soft boiled egg that he likes to eat. On on all of his oh, meals, Lord. it's the color of the soft boiled egg. You know, uh, although I mean, you want better, why she wasn't just hiding behind a plant; she was dressed as a plant. Oh, dressed as a plant. Why? Oh, why? I just want to eat you up, darling. <laughs> all right, so let's actually cut to the chase. And stop yes, being please, disgusting. please, please. Donkey okay. effing time. All right. Okay. So, if you watch The Crown this season, you may have noticed a lot of it is about Princess Diana and Prince Charles. And when Princess Diana first shows up, she is dressed as. A character from Midsummer Night's Dream, which is a Shakespeare play we talk about a lot on Overthinking It, and that Matt Rather loves talking about, and which is being directly referenced in ways that are very pertinent to the ways that we always talk about it. So, Matt, <laughs> what does Midsummer Night's Dream have to do with the crown? What is going on, and well, what is it that you always talk about with regards to this play? So she is car- she's dressed up as one of the fairies from... Uh, one of the fairies from Midsummer Night's Dream. And the fairies in Midsummer Night's Dream, um, aside from Puck, who works for Oberon, as it were, are the servants of Titania, the queen of the fairies, who, uh, because, uh, Oberon is sort of mad at her for, you know, kicking her out of bed, for kicking him out of bed, like for, you know, um, Right, like disconnecting from him for a little while. He casts a spell on her that she falls in love with a human. Ugh, ick number one, a fairy in love with a mortal. And two, he has transformed this mortal into the shape 
of a donkey and uh, or at least put ears donkey ears on his head and kind of made him go usually when it's characterized people go like they make like donkey noises and do like donkey mannerisms you know whatever donkeys do stamp their feet or i don't know eat trash out of the trash cans or or something like that and the point that i always make Is that you, you may go into this play. You may say you go into this play because you want to hear the beautiful elevated poetry of Shakespeare. You may say that you want to see a great love story, arguably a prototype for all romantic comedies, uh, ever. You may say that, you know, you want to see the kind of the joy of a spate of, of marriages at the end where sort of young people find love and, and are, are satisfied. You may want to see the, the comic antics of the the mechanicals which is a side plot in this play where some uh, working class people are uh, being adorably working class and putting on a play for the for the royals uh, but really the reason that you go to this play is titania f's a donkey she f's a donkey and there's a donkey on Every poster for Midsummer Night's Dream from the, from the, the, the lowliest elementary school production up to the Folger Shakespeare Theater in, in Washington, D.C., right all the way through to the Royal Shakespeare Company. There is a donkey on it. The donkey is the reason that you want to watch Midsummer Night's Dream, specifically that there is an ethereal fairy effing the donkey. Now. <laughs> Now, the the point that I make with this when I when I'm done horrifying everyone who listens to me. Uh the point that I make with this is that uh the reasons the reasons that we purport to like things are not necessarily the reasons that we like things. That the real attractions, uh, especially of comedy, I mean, even of tragedy, really, are, can can be much darker. You know, why do you why do you watch Macbeth? You know, like, is what is fun about you know uh, about uh, seeing a guy kill the king and like be going a murderous rampage and like give rein to his ambition? Is it you know is it the like the ten minutes at the end where good kind of triumphs over evil, right? Like, no, it's the murderous rampage. You're in it for the murderous rampage. It's fun. Like, and it's okay to say that, right? Like, it's okay to say that we sort of indulge in, uh, we indulge in the sort of the, the lawlessness in the woods. And a lot of Shakespeare comedies are structured as like going from civilization into like the woods, whatever the woods are, into a notional woods or into the real forest in the case of Midsummer Night's Dream, and then coming out at the end and, and, uh, and life comes, life comes back. So, I mean, I, I've spoken enough, Pete. So why don't you sort of go ahead and, and relate the, the, what I call the donkey effing conundrum, which is the kind of the ulteriority of our kind of motives and pleasures in watching something, the kind of slippage between, uh, what we enjoy and what we purport to enjoy, uh, as it relates to the crown. Sure. So to give one example that maybe is a little more proximate to people to understand the kind of thing we're talking about, it's like Back to the Future where Marty McFly is with his mom. And that's like everybody comes around eventually being like, wow, that's weird. That's messed up. And it's like, yup, a lot of stuff is messed up. A lot of entertainments are messed up in ways that aren't necessarily apparent at first, but which register on some sort of subconscious level and are part of what make them salacious or entertaining or thrilling or new or risky or whatever it is, right? And so that I just wanted to bring that up as a possibility, right? So why is it relevant to the crown? 
Well, for one big thing, this is the crown season that more than the previous ones is about the royal family as the three of us experienced it growing up in the 80s and early 90s in the tabloids, right, with the the, uh, explosion in popularity of salacious gossip about Princess Diana and Prince Charles. And even more so than during the, you know, the abdication years, this is the point where the royal family becomes synonymous with bad marriages and 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 kind of troubled home life and kind of disorganized, bizarre sort of constant affairs. Right. Like there, there's this sort of vibe that was in the media uh, for us growing up. And it might have been for you either. Maybe you were already grown. Maybe uh, you had just been born. Maybe you hadn't yet come out yet. But um uh, get welcome, I guess, if you're brand new to this whole living thing, uh, you know, please give generously to the Actors Fund and make sure that you uh, burp heartily after you drink your formula. But no, um, the idea here is that everybody is watching Princess Diana and Prince Charles, these two huge figures. Right. And, and Diana is really the huge one. And he is mostly notable for being married to her, uh, getting in a constant string of real and or fabricated and or thoroughly misunderstood marital problems and, and that the, and that people can't look away right you're in the grocery store and there are five newspaper magazines you know newsprint magazines and tabloids sitting on the rack and this is just in new jersey let alone in the uk all with different stories that might be true or might be false about terrible things that are happening with with charles and diana Right. Prince Princess Diana is doing this. Prince Charles is doing that. Oh, no, it's over. Oh, it's Fergie. And she's doing this and they're doing that. And so on one hand, right, the the episode of The Crown concerns that period in history wherein the obsession with the royal family becomes a donkey effing obsession in the sense that you've described in which everybody not everybody, obviously, I don't want to speak universally, but which the sort of grand focus on the crown, as it were, becomes diverted to this notion of the, I'm sorry, this notion of these salacious and maybe perverse or maybe disloyal, all of the things that could potentially blow up and go wrong, the princesses and the donkeys and whatnot. It's kind of a metaphorical thing there. But also this season of the crown takes on the contemporary, I hesitate to call it revisionism because it's not like we, we felt differently about it at the time. I mean, we did, but but it's more like uh, the the sort of biographication of the many biographies, right? The sort of sifting through the dreck that was the actual things that people thought that they knew about Charles and Diana over the course of various more authoritative biographical studies of them. Certainly after the death of Princess Diana, the tone of this changed a little bit. We have all come to know, in the sense that you know things, that a better sense for what actually happened to them. A better sense. I wouldn't say that we necessarily know for sure, because how can we know for sure that we know for sure? Known knowns and unknown knowns and whatnot. But the point is that we now can look back and say, okay, we have a pretty good handle on how bad things were for Princess Diana coming in as a really young woman into this really messed up situation. And we know how things were, were pretty bad for Prince Charles in certain ways, but like, you know, they were worse for her in a lot of ways that were really bad and that this whole thing must have just been terrible. And rather than it being a kind of carnival of of kind of uh, mistakes and confusion and salaciousness, 
uh, it was something of a tragedy, even even before she died in a horrible car crash, which is also the sort of weird subtext of this entire season, right, is that this is a woman who is a global icon, uh, thought of generally as a good person, despite all of the salacious things she was accused of doing, very involved in a very sincere way with charity and altruism, facing off against such things as AIDS and landmines, which I would hope that we don't have any listeners who are on the pro side of. Uh, right? It's like uh, this is not somebody who is, you know, a, an edgy figure per se. Right. Um, but she suffered a whole lot in this situation that was really messed up. But she's also very privileged. Right. And very wealthy and in a very kind of high profile job, uh, in which had a lot of prestige, and a lot of perks, to say the least. Right. And so there's a complicated notion of tragedy and sympathy. And so you could say and this is all a long way of saying that we could say that we are watching this season of The Crown in order to unpack and understand the real moral truth of, of Princess Diana and Prince Charles. Because at the end of last season, we started to see how Prince Charles became the man he as he is in, of course, the fictionalized way that The Crown operates. We're not really talking about real people. We're talking about ideas of people. A lot of the events are not real. A lot of the stories are made up or variations on things that did happen, but involving different people in completely different ways. But but we're dealing with modern mythology, and these are people that are larger than life. And so we have a sense now, we've built up the sympathy for Prince Charles. We're now going to watch and understand that no, Princess Diana wasn't the floozy, right? Actually, there was a lot of really rough stuff that was happening that was really hard to deal with, and we're going to establish sympathy with her. Or... Or this is a Midsummer Night's Dream, and we are here to watch the train wreck, right? We are here to watch, and I hate to say train wreck because of, of it's too proximate to the idea of a car wreck to be a real joke, but we are here because we want to see Princess Diana and Prince Charles, which in and of itself has a characteristic of donkey effing, which I'll just put right out there, right? Like, like she is this luminary figure, right? And uh, and he is Oh, he doesn't, he doesn't look that bad. <laughs> I, uh, I see what you did there. Uh, what was <laughs> no, his eyesight's fine. He doesn't use glasses. Um, I mean, maybe he, he does now, of course, but you know, they're therefore but the grace of God, right? Do all of us. Uh, but yeah, you know what I mean, right? It's like you think that you think that you might be watching this show in order to get to a moral core of what happened with Charles and Diana, but really, you want to watch what happened with Charles and Diana as much as everybody else does. And so, and furthermore. Charles wants that in this episode, in this season, right? As this fictionalized version of himself, he wants the trouble, it seems, right? He's, he doesn't seem to want things to work out, right? He seems to sort of, he's a drama guy himself. He's a drama kid. He courts drama. And so there's this sort of multi-layered notion of rubbernecking, right? We are all rubbernecking the slow motion disaster that is the modern development of the British royal family subsequent to really I would suppose the 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 adulthood of Elizabeth II's children right and, and each of them in all their own special ways have their own special problems which might have specially killed themselves in their special prison cells you know depending on how you feel about things right um so, which is which is one way of putting it but you know what i mean right it's just that yeah. like this whole thing is donkey effing and and we are we are watching both because we want to see that interrogation of the moral situation, which is also connected to the moral situation of the UK in the late 70s, the 80s and into the early 90s, which is not a simple moral situation. Um, but also 
it is, it is such a salacious hotbed of of drama and story and betrayal and salaciousness and beauty, right? And 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 loss and all of the sort of operatic things. Also, just sort of being laid low by just tawdriness, right? And uh, and just and just just sort of crass abuses of of uh, of sublimity. Sublimity. So I don't know, Mark. Sorry, I've talked yeah, for a that, lot too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me pick up on the on the tawdriness aspect of it um, and build out this, uh, this idea of the donkey effing conundrum and and this you know the the ulterior side of it and us like. You know, rubber uh, rubbernecking this this horrible disaster that's unfolding, right? I really want to hone in on the repeated, fairly graphic depictions of bulimia in multiple episodes of the show, right? Mm. Just really clear, Diana has this eating disorder, um, which is you know part and parcel of you know um, the the damage that her psyche maybe had prior to going into a relationship and was exacerbated going uh, into the relationship, right? She's just like you know. Uh, binges on food and then vomits it up and does it over and over again. And it's like there's like smash cutting right from this the the nearly impossible glamour of her image and the cult of personality that's being built up around that image. Um, you know, you smash cut from that to blah, 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 vomit, 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 vomit. Right. I, I think it goes beyond like merely um um, kind of being a passive observer into this and then to like into the zone of saying that you, my dear viewer, might even be part of the problem. By which I mean like, um, you know, we, the royal, the royal we, um, you know, the collective public that fed into Diana mania in the 80s and, you know, were, were willing participants of the fairy tale of uh, around the royal, royal family that we we are part of the equation that creates these impossible expectations for the members of the royal family that um, might, you know, in, in our own small little ways have led up to all the suffering. And we get, literally get to see it vomited up on the screen for us for our entertainment purposes. And so uh, in addition to this being a donkey effing conundrum, I also think this is a gladiator conundrum, right? Are you not entertained? Yeah, um, <laughs> right. right. You know, as uh, as you know, the the filmmaker splatters incredible violence across the screen, indicts the um the the, the characters who um who cause the violence to occur, and also indicts the audience for um, enjoying it, but also like being aware of the fact that uh, really Scott in this case is the person who produced that violence as well, and is kind of reveling in it as well. So it's all like a lot of complicated stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's this kind of uh, circle of causality and, you know, who's to quote unquote blame for what. But I, th- I think that's that's a very important thing I wanted to get out there in particular, like the bulimia stuff. And like, you know, because in a show that is so opulent and you know has so much gracefulness and, you know, and, and careful composition to it, stuck right in the middle of that and repeatedly jabbed into the eyeballs of the viewer is like sickness, well, pure sickness it's very upsetting like it 100 yes. it's very upsetting i think we go into you, you go into really sort of subtle territory because you know I, I don't know how you make movies about bad things without showing bad things 
uh, a little bit. And so it must be, I mean, it's not, I'm not totally there with, with Jean-Luc Godard who turned down a lifetime achievement Oscar uh, in the wake of Schindler's list because, you know, the Schindler's list had recently been released and it said, well, why don't you want a lifetime achievement Oscar? And he said, because you let Steven Spielberg rebuild Auschwitz. Right. And that, that is a position <laughs> that is possible to have, which is that the sort of the representation of a historical evil is tantamount in some way, or maybe not exactly tantamount to condoning it, but cannot help but glorify it somehow. Um, you know, in terms of kind of, in terms of representing it in cinema. And like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure I quite see eye to eye with that, uh, you know, with that point of view, right? Like, how, how do you do it, especially in a, you know, in a show where the point is to kind of like, actually kind of not identify with the press? The press comes in, you know, for some, criticism right it's some or at least it's something that like is is managed it's sort of part of the show it's part of the like the elaborate regalia uh of the crown along with the the costumes and the the um what is it what is uh what is um margaret thatcher say a, like a tribal leader in a funny hat uh <laughs> right and that's um it's the second time I think that phrase, uh, it's the second time I think that phrase was used. I think Philip used it sometime in the first two years, uh, of, of the show, the first two seasons. And so like that, I'm not, um, it's really tough. So like wh- when does the show use it? Cause I, I, I agree that they come back to, they come back to it over and over and over and over again. And like, so I guess, I guess like why and how? And I think you're right, Mark, in saying like smash cut is exactly right. Like there's very often an abrupt change in tone, uh, from sort of public face to kind of private moment. Um, and that like even when she is sort of radiant and glorious, you know, um, uh, publicly she is, uh, uh, miserable privately and i also think that like it doesn't it it's sort of solitariness she's unseen she's alone um she's like uh you know uh, uh she's kind of increasingly she's increasingly miserable and there's like um and and the aspect i think of of sort of self-harm uh is you know, is important to it as well, almost as though she's acting out the, you know, very, she's acting out the, the sort of brutality at a distance, right? That the, that all the, every, everyone else in the family, um, visits on her. And the, the, it's funny. I, I watched this with Christina and she said something interesting, which is that like, oh, the show has really changed its tone. It, it like is very anti the Royals now. And I, you know, I, I didn't discern a change in tone so much as, as what I discerned was you sort of see them differently because you see them through the eyes of other people because the show introduces some other characters to, to, you know, that, that become kind of focal points or, or I don't know, balance points or something like that or foils, um, in different ways for, uh, the show's main character, which is a hat. Um, and that like the, uh, the two other characters sort of force you to see kind of some of the, the inhumanity. Um, you know, that the hat, the hat, uh, really hasn't learned to love, right? The hat says, I am not the most intuitive mother. You know, uh, the, the, the hat does not breed as sort of the hat's emotional intelligence, at least, you know, for, 
um, uh, at least for those those close to uh, cl- close to the hat, um, is not so is not so good. I, I don't know, Pete. You had some thoughts about the the kind of the two foil characters. Um, not that they are made of foil. It's not like uh, there's a real hat and then like foil hats, tin foil hats. No, it's not that. It's not that kind of show. Even though one of the foils is from the X Files. Right, right, right. So yeah, so so okay. The the show we've we've given this sort of intro into the some of the sort of surface level concerns with watching the show, but now we can drill a little bit more into what the season is really about because it doesn't just stop there. It's not a very simple season of television. There's a lot of complex symbolism. There's a lot of plot lines. It's it's there's a lot of long monologues that characters give by television standards about both the state of the world and the sort of state of the characters and, and about you as the audience watching it. So there's a lot going on, but I think that the core of what's going on in this season is you have it's the crown is the, as you said, the main character is the hat and this isn't Hungary, right? The Royal authority, the sovereignty isn't invested in the actual physical object of the hat, like it is with the crown of St. Stephen, right? It is invested instead in the, this sort of notional idea of being, you know, the sovereign and all of the traditions and the coronation that goes on around that and the, you know, the sanctification or whatever it is, right? All that stuff that's happened that has made Elizabeth II the queen uh, is is this thing that constitutes the crown, which then has this particular sort of political role in things. And what we're seeing in this season is two alternate crowns. We are seeing two crowns rise to potentially challenge Queen Elizabeth's crown. And the show being highly symbolic, but also entertaining and uh, and not inaccessible, makes these crowns very clear and present. They are the hairstyles of the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and the Princess of Wales, uh, Diana Spencer, uh, which is just, uh, I mean, I guess she's just Lady Diana or Princess Diana. She's, did she stop being a Spencer at that point? No, because she, she married in the royal family. So she keeps her life. I don't even know. We're not even going to get into it. But the point is that you have two female characters who are set up as as potential foils, as you said, in opposition to Queen Elizabeth, what Queen Elizabeth wants, how Queen Elizabeth wants things to go. And both of them have very famous haircuts. And I don't think this is a coincidence because those haircuts are not played down even a little bit. Those hair- <laughs> <laughs> The haircuts are large and in charge, and the last shot of the season is of one of these haircuts, right? These are these are famous haircuts. Uh, if you were to show just the haircut, in one case, you would definitely guess who it was. And the other case, it might be Bram Stoker's Dracula, but then after a couple of guesses, you would probably get who it is. Um, which is, of course, the large, I don't even know how to describe that sort of hairsprayed post-beehive thing that margaret thatcher has on her head yeah sort of weird Um, updo that she that she does the you know yeah yeah and and then you have princess diana who had the sort of half karen pixie cut right which is like the the a style of like nowadays that kind of haircut tends to be demeaned but it also doesn't tend to be as quite as stylish as princess diana's haircut was you don't see a lot of exact replicas of princess diana's haircut uh as far as i can tell outside of like maybe like girl punk bands or something. I'm not sure who are trying to be ironical about it. I don't know. But the point is that you have Margaret Thatcher who rises up as this political leader and this potentate, right? This, this person who is backed by material power, by military might, who wants to control the country, who wants to 
rule, right? She wants to, to dictate what everybody is doing. She wants to destroy the things that she sees as, as uh, extraneous or as uh, against her own principles. I think that's probably the main, probably the main both kind and unkind way to describe Margaret Thatcher is as a destroyer, right? As somebody who, whose mission is to break down the public systems that are, that are kind of holding together the relationship between the people and the government in the United Kingdom and are kind of enacting it every day. And she wants to break those down in her mind because she wants to liberalize the ability of the country's people and resources to more flexibly respond to the needs of the day. But in the minds of many others, due to a callous disregard for the suffering of others, that is informed by her own insistence that the suffering that she went through uh, was necessary in order to forge her character as opposed to unfortunate, right? Um, and, and sort of there's a processing of grief that's happening that's described several times in this uh, in this, um, in this this season, which is not really endeavored upon in a psychologically healthy way by Margaret Thatcher. No, perhaps if there's one thing that Margaret Thatcher in this season does, it's process complex feelings inappropriately, right? Like she, she goes to war because she's scared for the life of her race car driving son, uh, right. Um, and, and she wants to sort of establish control over the, the, the far flung lost citizens of the empire. Right. Um, who at the same, but with the other hand, she decries as like uncivilized, you know, monsters, right. Well, with the other and, and her sort of casual racism and her kind of double talk about colonial relationships and, and, uh, and post-colonial relationships. But yes, you have Margaret Thatcher who it is cautioned is going to come for the queen's job at some point and in a collision around apartheid does break quite a bit of protocol and expectation with regards to the delicacy with which she handles her relationship with the queen. Right. And, and this leads to uh, a variety of reversals and counter reversals. And there's a whole story about um, the drama between Margaret Thatcher and queen Elizabeth, which we can talk about whether or to what degree that stuff is true, but it's positioned in the in this season as being pretty fraught. And then on the other hand, rather than, you know, the queen doesn't really have the control of the army, right? Even though she is its head, right? She doesn't control the church, even though she's its head, right? She doesn't control parliament, even though parliament includes the crown, right? She, she, is, she has this role that doesn't give her the kind of real grip on things that that Margaret Thatcher is able to enact. And yet the show interrogates what kind of power in this situation Queen Elizabeth really does have and how that relationship turns out. Uh, and then the other side is Diana, who becomes the beloved celebrity, who has the support of the people, who presents a new way of looking at being a royal, uh, who who reinvents the whole franchise, right? And who is who is beloved by all, and who ultimately seeks to leverage this to achieve some measure of liberation from her very unfortunate interpersonal circumstances with regards to her marriage, and who finds that that crown on her head isn't quite as mighty as she thinks it is, uh, in, in a sort of final horrific Kaiser Sose-esque realization at the end of this season. Mm. Um, anyway, that's how I would frame this, right? Is that this that yes, there's also situations where you see, you know, see Princess Margaret, you see the Queen Mother, you see the sort of dispossessed cousins who are nonverbal, uh, heavily cognitively or uh, just otherwise emotionally challenged in various ways, who are in sanitarium, 
Right. Uh, you you do see, and of course, you see Philip, who's the best, and I love Philip in the show. He's just so great. Played by played by the guy who played Brutus from Rome, of course, and he gets to say <laughs> "Etu Brute" at one point, which is uh, which is delightful. Though he says it's the Ides of March, right? Um, but anyway, I've rambled a lot because I was excited about all the symbolism in the show. But I would say that that if we go through the seasons in the Crown, and the first season is about the Queen coming to terms with the Crown, and the second season is about the marriage, right? And then the third season is about what? I guess it's about Charles and the family. And then then this season has these two other ladies who who come to bear and and they come to town. The stranger comes to town. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, third season is about sort of the individual, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, the, in the place, like what what happens kind of to individuals? Oh, yeah, you're right. Because it has the whole thing with with Margaret and the pool and the, and the photographer and all that. Nonsense. Exactly. Oh, no, the photographers. Yeah. 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 yeah I got you. I got her, you. her husband is the photographer, yeah. <laughs> but the, the Lord Snowden, but the, yeah. um, yeah, it's about like what, what hope there is as it were for an individual in this, in this family or in this situation. But, um, yeah. And, and I guess the, the sort of the fourth season, like sees these, sees these outsiders. It really does. It sort of checks in on season three in the episode where Queen Elizabeth sort of uh, arranges lunches with her four children and realizes that they're terrible. Yeah. Um, and realizes that they're just, they're all awful. They're all just. We can only really say that totally unambiguously about one of them, but the other, but that's the, that's the realization that takes place, right? Um, in, in the context of the story, right? Um, like, I don't know for a fact that Anne is terrible in real life, but I'm pretty confident about Andrew at this point. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, go on, go on. So, well, right. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> but just um, as a side, just, just, just to, you know, to make that explicit, you're, you're talking about like how it very clearly makes a reference to him and like the pedophilia and the uh, Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes. yeah. Like, like the season yep. does like trot that yeah. out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does not go there. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Oh God. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. Continue. So yeah. So, so she checks in with her kids. She finds out that, that she's very alienated from them, that she hasn't raised them well, that they are horrible. They're, they're just intolerable. Right. Um, yeah, they're and, fair, and then what, yeah, where, they're from fairly, there, from whence there? Yeah. Well, they're fair. They're fairly awful. I mean, from whence there, I don't know. She doesn't really have, um, she doesn't really have a great deal of uh she doesn't really have a great deal of resources to fall back on <laughs> in this you know in this department all she can do is kind of of keep on keeping on right like stoicism is her like is her kind of one move um is her one move that she goes and and because she sort of you know did this all this kind of abnegation all this like uh you know sort of self um kind of mortifying uh, of all of her own kind of ambitions and thoughts and everything like this. She kind of assumes everyone around her uh, ought to, ought to be doing the same thing. Right. Right. But like, uh, you know, they don't have her job. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. And, and also it's, I mean, it's interesting, right? Like, cause she, she's going into, like there's scenes of members of the royal family in therapy in talk therapy in this uh in this season and this you know this will be the 80s right and like talk therapy isn't that um you know i don't know it at least in in the states you know the great rise of kind of mid-century psychoanalysis like talk therapy uh but it was associated with like very severe 
kinds of psychic disturbances, right? Not like not like we would sort of see it today. So like the the eighties, you can think of like as like somewhere as a midpoint, one way or another, on on this continuum, wh- where it's it's maybe a little avant garde, right? To be uh, talking talking to a therapist uh, about your unhappiness as though your unhappiness were something that you should examine and you know try to learn from and try to uh, try to ameliorate somehow rather than just kind of stiff up or lipping it and like getting on getting on with it like get on with it get on with it is a is a phrase that occurs over and over and over and over again in the um uh, in the dialogue of the show, a, a lot of it's spoken by the queen. And so like the, the, uh, you know, the, the, um, the idea that, you know, there's therapy, like that we're in a different age and she, she finds herself, I think she being the queen, um, finds herself without the thought technology, you know, right. to like, <laughs> to, uh, address, the people who she, um, the people who she, uh, uh you know, uh, purportedly cares about. And they're, they're like, this, com- this comes to a head in two very sort of big, well, I, I don't know. In the last episode, there's sort of three speeches, right? Two from Diana and one from, uh, sorry, Diana, two from the queen, two from Queen Elizabeth and one from, uh, Prince Philip that I feel like, that I feel like are a good, um, Right, because one ha- one is to uh, is to Thatcher, the queen giving her the order of merit, um, and the the like. I, I I like. There was a little bit of damning with faint praise in that speech, where it's like, well, it's supposed to be for people who have like affected British life in one way or another, agree with you or disagree with you. You sure? It's like it's like when Time was like, in order to sell magazines, they were flirting with the idea of giving the Person of the Year award to Osama bin Laden in two thousand one. Right? It's like, well, guys, it's for the person who affected the history in the United States the most. And come on, who is that? And then and then it went to America's Man. Rudy Giuliani, and we all know how that turned out. So, right, like, so a little bit, it's like, well, Margaret Thatcher, you know, uh, ex prime minister Thatcher, right? You sure changed the country, I guess. So, here's a medal. Um, no, it's, you were it, a doozy. It's a lot. It's a lot more touching. It's a lot more touching than that. And I think there's there's a kind of recognition. Um, there's a kind of recognition uh, between the two of them that, like, is. Um, you know, I, you know, really sort of touching, uh, especially because they like, uh, you know, they, they sort of make you forget that Margaret Thatcher was awful. Right. And that like, they make you remember, but then they make you. Forget. <laughs> yeah, it's, nah. it's very, there's a lot of sort of sentimentality about her and, and, and actually all true stuff about her, um, you know, the, some of the unfair ways that, that she was treated or some of the things that, that, uh, men in her position had not had to deal with. So, so right, there's that. The second speech is, um, Elizabeth to Charles, which is just scathing. Like, oh, yeah. Just, That's a great speech. It's That's a, a great speech and well, very well delivered and elegant in its simplicity. Yeah. It's, <laughs> like, oh. And she doesn't like, I, I love Olivia Coleman so much. Like, it's it, a rare, rare moment of the, the film academy doing something awesome. Uh, they, you know, giving her an Oscar was like, absolutely. She's the best. And like, she just, and, and completely unshowy, you know, like, uh, definitely not, um, 
sort of scenery chewing in the way that that Gillian Anderson is uh, a lot, like really leaning into the mannerisms. I mean, I think the show wants her to do that. I think that she is, you know, I think she is being a good actor and that she is participating in the vision, you know, yeah. uh, correctly. Like uh, that is to say that she is behaving as directed and like really making the best of it. Um, but it's a different, like in terms of the characterizations, the the methods of characterization, you can like really draw distinctions between them. The third speech is, is Philip to Diana at the end, which is, uh, which is an elaboration on the Marlowe from the wire, uh, speech, which is, uh, you want it to be one way, but it's the other way. <laughs> and that's like, which is, uh, he goes on rather longer. Um, but that's the, uh, that's the thing. And the whole, you know, and, and that speech is as, as close to a thesis statement, um, as the show has, which is that like this, this, right. This, this is you, you are confused about the show that you're in, right? Yes. Like you, you think you're in a romantic comedy about a troubled marriage where like everyone sees, like everyone sees the, the light, uh, at the end and kind of like comes together. But that's not this show. That's the Kristen Stewart Christmas movie that's on Hulu. <laughs> it's like, you're on the wrong you're on the I'm wrong coming for you. service I'm coming for you christmas that's, movie that's that's victor garber and mary steenburgen you know like coming to terms with uh with who their daughters actually are right that's that movie you're in it the clues in the name diana it's called the crown it's about a hat Right. And if you think you're more important than the hat, you are, are laboring under a grave misapprehension. And that, and it's another one that is, that is sort of very well delivered. Um, slightly more mustache twirly because he says, watch out. It won't go well for you if you step out of line. Uh, and it makes you, um, <laughs> you know, it makes you wonder what, uh, makes you wonder if they really did, if all the conspiracy theories are true. Um, anyway, sorry. That's, that's a, a kind of a long elaboration on, on those things, but it, it does seem like in those three speeches, this sort of, you know, uh, the queen versus the queen versus Thatcher, the, the queen kind of by proxy through Philip versus versus Diana and then the queen dealing with her heir dealing with like the crown dealing with the future of the crown right like all of those those um uh the those like three sort of tributaries that you identified Pete merge back into one yeah before we uh move on to other things I just wanted to circle back to this like very interesting notion of Diana not uh understanding uh the TV show that she's in <laughs> right because like you know that there's that amazing scene where she sits uh, um Charles down for her for the anniversary present which she pops the vh tape vhs tape in um and where she's singing um um the song from the fan of the opera what i think it's that's all i ask of you right and so like you know she thinks that's the show that she's watching and yet that's also a horrible misreading of the fans of the opera <laughs> right where like you know like that's uh that's supposed to be this like touching romantic gesture but um as i'm given to understand in the phantom of the opera uh that couple does not uh get together at the end <laughs> Yeah, spoiler, spoiler. Diana, for, not reading the room, Diana. Not not paying attention to the text or the subtext, huh? Yeah. That is actually, it was a really good because that was their their anniversary gifts to one another were terrible. Were terrible gifts, right? Because they were gifts of the sort that they would like to receive, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that like. Uh, 
that that and it's funny they like they actually realize in the australia episode they realize that that like oh we both don't feel seen like we both don't feel appreciated we both feel like no no one knows who i am or no one no one knows who who i am and um you know and uh though though uh you know he had not yet uttered these famous phrases uh the queen actually has some advice for the rock for for each of them you know what that is pete Advice for the rock uh, from the rock for oh, each the of rock. them for each of those people who think you. you I don't... remember this scene because it's about <laughs> it's about four thirty in the afternoon and the queen invites Charles in for tea and she turns to him and she says, "Oh, do you like pie?" And he says, well, wait, 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 yes, I love pie. She goes, the crown thought so. If you smell. Uh, wait, is that no, she not says, the... <laughs> no, she your says, role, I believe, is the role, right? And then at this, uh, and then he says, um, I, I don't I want... want... You to pick up, I want you to pick up the scepter, turn that some sideways, and shit, never mind, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, the queen has come back to the Falkland Islands. <laughs> no, and uh, and then, then Charles says, I don't want sugar in my tea. And she says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you want sugar in your tea. And, it, like, and it's like, uh, no one knows who I am. And the queen's, the, the, the queen's answer, actually, I think she said this literally in season three, is like, it doesn't matter who you are. Like, yeah. the point is, like, who, who, who-ness... You know, is a luxury afforded to other people. And uh, among the many luxuries that come with the the crown or being in the royal family, that is not one of them. You know, a kind of like uh, a kind of no one gives a poop um, about who you actually are goes goes with the territory. And that's, uh, you know, that's um, sort of interesting. She's at least consistent. Right. And it. I mean, I love, love these speeches. And just to recount it, in case you're listening to this and you haven't seen the show, The three speeches are the first is where Queen Elizabeth flips the script on Margaret Thatcher and appeals to her as a woman, right, who has been challenged uh, in unfair ways by the men who are supposedly her friends and allies who disrespected her and devalued her through the course of her political career. This is a flip of when Margaret Thatcher shows up at the beginning of the season and tries to appeal to the queen as a woman in sort of a manipulative way to establish dominance in the relationship. Uh, but this, the queen then turns it around and she establishes dominance in the relationship by, which is in a sort of a, in sharing the grief, right? The second speech is, yeah, it's, it's everybody. And it's just so simple and elegant. It cuts through everything that's been going on in the entire season. It's that everybody out there wants you to, to be happy and to work it out. And you're both incredibly privileged and incredibly well off and incredibly lucky. And there's just no reason that you can't work it out, Right. And and when you think about that versus the Fagin episode, I feel like a lot of what we're talking about here reconnects with the Fagin episode in interesting ways. And the Fagin talking episode, about the home, the home invasion. Episode, yes, right? yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Which is not about Oliver Twist, but is about this. Uh, I mean, the, the the episode is not really a portrayal. It is based on true events, right? Like uh, it is it is a moment where one of the common men managed to to secure a private audience with the queen and talk about the state of the country, um, which re- reinforms, I think, to an extent, what the role of the monarchy is, uh, which I guess is to what? Be the thing under which people project their problems that sort of like stands up and bears it um, as opposed to kind of like folds and cries. Um, and 
and and then the yeah, end. So so then there's the other speech, right? With it's like everybody, you guys are totally lucky, and everybody just wants you to be happy. And and I mean, she's already offered them. You know, you guys don't even have to actually really be married. Right. Like you, you just have to keep up this this charade. Right. I'm not even sure. I didn't call that. It's like you can make any sort of arrangement you need to make. We're aristocrats. Right. We get to do whatever we want to an extent as long as you do it the right way. So, like, let's work it out. Right. And, and, and which is a very generous offer from a mother and a strange one, perverse even. But uh, but but offered. Right. And then the third speech is that just great speech by Philip where he he first he tells her things aren't going to go well for her if she tries to leave, which you could, again, I think you could imply that there is some sense in which that might be taken as a threat. And there's a little bit of a bit of fish food for the conspiracy theorists there. But I also want to think back to Diana in the very beginning of the season, where once she becomes involved with the royal family at all, she has no privacy at all. She has nowhere she can go. Right. She needs like guards at her house. So the idea that she could leave and go back out there seems like it actually would be pretty bad, right, for her. At least I'm thinking about it, right? If she if she kind of leaves the institution that is providing for all of her kind of like PR and all of her like, uh, I mean, it's, you know, the ex-presidents hold on to the Secret Service for good reason. Um, but I don't think that's maybe these are all different ways that you could potentially read it. But the real dagger is when he points out to her, yes, the problem in your marriage is not that you don't get along with Charles. The problem in your marriage is that you don't realize how much of this whole thing is for the benefit of and supported by the queen and the crown, right? Like you're married to the queen. The queen is the person that we all need to deal with, right? And and not even we all need to deal with. It's like he describes her as their oxygen, that everyone is lost, Right. That they're all lost. They're all lost souls. They're all they all feel meaningless or 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 abandoned in some way. They all feel like outsiders. They never don't feel like outsiders. But the queen is the air that they breathe and that that's what they need to attend to. Right. That's who the center is. And when he says when he says we think Charles is is mad and she kind of is like, I don't you know, this is too late for that. And she probably she misunderstands in that scene, right? Just how much of an insult he's levying at Charles in that moment. Like, like we know that we this is my son, and I know that he's crazy, and I have no respect for him, right? Um, oh, there's so many little niches in the season that we could just dive into. I don't want to go too deep into any of them or follow any of them through, but I just love that so much tension is built around the the Diana and Charles relationship only to have it undercut so severely at the end. I mean, it was breathless for me. I really liked that moment. Uh, I mean, of course, it cuts to Princess Diana just swelling with tears, right? Sitting, you know, standing two, three people over from her husband in the family photo, Um and and of course, that's very sad because, of course, we all know that this is eventually going to kill her, uh, this whole lifestyle. But um, this this lack of control over her immediate environment that is be- that has become the case because she became entangled with this family. But uh, and in real life, she's going to die. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know, Mark, you, you had other directions you wanted to take it. But I just wanted to comment on that all a little bit because it was just such a it was these were all such they were set up and set up and set up, and they were each just reversals. They were each very dramatic, peripatetic moments. They were moments of recognition and reversal for these three tragic people who each think they're more important than the queen, and they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that sense, it's a really well 
drawn out kind of drama, tragic drama. And I think that would even go back to kind of justifying the salaciousness of the trigger warned bulimia scenes with the sort of like pity and fear angle, right? Like the, it is a rather puritanical notion that the arousal of the passions, you know, must always be to the moral detriment, right? Like that, that, you know, that, which is the other side of it, right? Like maybe showing the princess on her knees, puking in the toilet is supposed to tell you something about your own state of being in the world and, and what you owe to other people. Right. Um, and not in the sense of like making it better, than the than the lowness of it, not the sense that you're sort of separating from and elevating above it, but that you're living there in the dirt, too. Right. And, and the sort yeah. of the if there's any sort of morality that comes out of that, it's a morality of pity and fear and mutual recognition with with what this person is potentially dealing with um, this fictional person. Right. Uh, in the sense of the high being laid low, um, as opposed to the idea of being instructed in how to live your life by the ideas that are expressed in it. Right. Since you brought the bulimia stuff back uh, uh, up and uh, I, I raised that at first here, like, I just want to be clear, like, I, I'm not you know, like, you know, uh, casting moral approbation uh, against the decision. Right. You know, to, I mean, to, to show warranted. that it, it, yeah. it, 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 is, it is difficult, you know, and, and it's, it's right to be called out. It's, it's very difficult and, and extremely uncomfortable uh, television to watch. And, you know, there is like, you know, this, you know, you've, uh, there, there's more than enough room to make this. You know, moral concern. Uh, you know about you know all the the complicity that I, that I talked about here. But you know, to to the point, like you know, we're talking about this as a creative work, as a work of storytelling. You know, and and one that just to be again really clear has a lot of room for creative license. Like, yeah, those depictions of bulimia are are very much justified, right? This show really knows has is very inten- extraordinarily intentional in every aspect of what it's doing. You know, to the visuals. The script, uh, the storytelling, and and I, you know, and and on that point, you know, I want to use that as a bit of a tangent. Talk about the visuals for just a second, because I was really struck. Maybe I was just paying more attention to it this season, or maybe like they were just like so much more on, hitting the nail on the head on, on things this season about visual symbolism, uh, in, in and using it to tell the story. Like, and because we're talking about that last you know scene of Diana, you know, um, finally leaving her room and then going to the uh to the family photo shoot do you guys remember what happens in between what we see in between her room and then the photo shoot no no i don't the uh she she descends the stairwell and it's like the walls on the stairwell are just uh festooned i think festooned is the right word um with deer antlers right mounted deer heads um, to quote uh, the great philosopher of the French 18th century, I use antlers and uh, Gaston. I use antlers in all of my decorating. <laughs> and and what we see there is like, well, I guess you know to a certain extent, like the toxic masculinity that Gaston <laughs> represents, but maybe, maybe more specific to this show, right? The um, the brutality <laughs> of the royal family, right? You know, and this stretches back to um, uh, which episode? What the earlier episode? You know, it's all about the stag, right? That was. Um, wounded, grievously wounded uh, by by a hunter nearby, and then there's just like all this, you know, imagery of uh, of hunting, and then also at the end of at the beginning of the of the season finale, um, there's like lots of gore with the pheasants that they that they hunted down and killed, right? Like the speak of blood as they spike it onto a, onto a sharp object. So that, um, you know, I wanted to call all that out there as being like, you know, uh, important visual work that the show was doing, like what you see on the screen you know, means lots of things. And, and perhaps on a lighter note, I also I c- cannot uh, have a discussion about season four of the crown 
without bringing up a apparently surprisingly subtle joke that they make about Margaret Thatcher. And I'm, of course, referring to her being the Iron Lady, who is equally adept with, um, you know, um, uh, um, armoring herself in iron in the intense battles of Parliament as she is with using, yes, the iron at home to iron her husband's shirts. So um, hats off to the show for like, checking up every single use, box. Does she use cast iron? When she oh, I don't think she does. That's <laughs> such a missed opportunity. Cast but I guess like lady. I guess like they, they hit that one uh, uh, note at the, at the beginning of the, of the season. Uh, and they're like, okay, all right, we did it. We got that out of the way. And let's move on. Um, are there any other fun visual things that you guys saw um, that you thought were either like amusing or, or 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 very weighted with symbolism? I mean, the whole thing is so sumptuous, right? Like there, there's there's a lot of underwater stuff, um, you know, that struck me as as laying on the uh, laying it on a little thick, maybe even. But uh, yeah, I mean, the the whole show is so beautiful, um, just all the time. Oh yeah, so oh, gosh, I'm trying to think about because now now you've put the, the well the when the bus goes by Buckingham Palace is pretty on the nose in the pagan episode, and he like looks out the window and sees Buckingham Palace. I mean, he, I mean, it's like yeah, out of the Princess Diaries. His face <laughs> like half, half shrouded in darkness, right, but with the light coming in uh, from the palace, right, and now, then he wait. turns. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and then he turns his face to to. to um, to see the to see the to see Buckingham Palace, and then we get to see uh, and then the, all then then the light all all shines upon his face. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I just had a brain explosion when when the when the guy. So there's this episode in this in the season, which if you haven't watched it, it's pretty good. You should probably watch it before listening to this podcast, um, where the guy sneaks into Buckingham Palace and he steals a bottle of wine, right? And he drinks like the bottle of wine. Do you remember what kind of wine it was? No, I don't. What was it? I think it's a South African Riesling. Oh, I think yeah, I, I it was a, he, a Johannesburg Riesling. It's, yes, that's, it's a Johannesburg Riesling. That's the name. It's the name of a grape. Uh, so it's not. I, it oh. not, doesn't necessarily have the the uh, all that symbolism. But yeah, I mean, it, I enough, think it still has know? the symbolism yeah. if it has the same name. Fair the enough. idea that he sneaks into Buckingham Palace under cover of darkness and secretly finds like the wine of the apartheid regime within it. And that there's this whole plot throughout the season of the queen trying to, you know, dispossess the apartheid government. But Margaret Thatcher having personal business connections there through her son and thus like stonewalling the efforts of the Commonwealth to attempt to uh, dislodge the racist, uh, racist ethno state that's kind of dominating people down there. Um, that's, I, I just realized that. Wow. So, okay. So a Johannesburg grape is not from Johannesburg, South Africa, but it just happens to have the same name as the cap as the capital commercial center of South Africa is Cape town, the capital or is Johannesburg, the capital I'm trying to remember. I know it's the commercial center. It's up in the mountains. Um, gosh, I'm really, I'm really, I should yeah, yeah, Sorry, we'll, we'll, really give the show, we'll give the show credit for that detail. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I mean, yeah. maybe not. Maybe that's the, uh, the wine. The wine spec. Uh, the wine spectator says uh, the term Johannesburg Riesling has been phased out of bottles in U.S. wines. Um, Johannesburg is a German wine region. So Cape Town is the capital of South Africa, but Johannesburg is its commercial center. This is commercial so center. So here's but, another one. But the Johannesburg the Johannesburg that they're talking about is a German wine region. Right, right, right. But it just happens to be the same name as the. Yeah, the, though, though I think I, I, think, spelled, I think spelled differently. 
Johan, oh, Johannes as opposed to Johannes. But yeah, there you go. here's another one. Where does Margaret Thatcher's son get lost when he is driving in the Dakar rally? In the in the wait, no, where where exactly does he get lost? I forget. In he the, gets the, lost. The great in an, of, when they they have a scene where they go through a map, right, and they identify the boundaries of the area, the extent of the area within which he might be lost. It is a desert the size of the of Great Britain, yeah, the size yeah. of the United Kingdom, right. So it's like so Margaret Thatcher's son is lost in a desert the size of the United Kingdom, which, of course, is like where the Queen's son, Fagan, is lost. Right. In the desert, the size of the United Kingdom. Um, Like like it's the idea being that Margaret Thatcher is kind of turning the United Kingdom into a desert or the United Kingdom is becoming a desert with or without her accelerationist policies Um, as such. uh, I thought that was an interesting little touch Uh, or just the notion that they're all in a desert in some way. Um, that, uh, I thought that was an interesting little note. Um, although he does, uh, it is the Dakar rally. I mean, you, I, we don't, we can't drill. It would be stupid to say like, oh, that's a Francophonic city. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> he's maybe, like Eleanor Backwater. Maybe, maybe uh, ever, so, ever so slightly too far. Maybe that, maybe that, that is, uh, beyond the, uh, extreme, you know, thematic, uh, unity of the show and the extreme kind of symbolic concern. I think we will leave it there. We went a little long on, on this one because we spent so long There's talking so about the, yeah, there, there is. Well, we leave it as an exercise. You need to learn how to do advertisements faster, Matt. You always do the advertisements really slowly. I'm sorry. That's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate. I'm passionate about what I promote, Pete. It's, uh, <laughs> that's what you get with a podcast live host read. You get the actual, you know, voice of the person. Um, I also, uh, yes, I agree. I am bad at them, but, uh, I hope that we as a community are not bad at, uh, supporting the actors fund. Click through the link in, uh, in the show notes for this episode. Do it now. Don't wait. Don't wait the whole week. Click, click now, go into the show notes of, of this episode. Uh, give us a contribution. We will pull it, uh, to support the actors fund. We will double it and we will, uh, send it to, uh, send it to them along and send you some, uh, some writing or some podcasts about, uh, bad holiday movies coming up. Thanks very much, uh, very much for being generous, especially at this uh, this time of year. All right. Thanks very much uh, for listening. Thanks, Mark and Pete, for podcasting. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where you uh, can watch us <laughs> subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, probably, it probably doesn't... doesn't. Your Majesty. Your Majesty.